The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The removal analysis, the test requires one of the elements of it. You know, there's it's a multi-pronged test, but one of the elements requires uh, showing that the federal official in question who is seeking to remove uh, subjectively believed that the conduct that is alleged in the indictment was was conduct that was necessary and proper to to their role as a federal official. So, you know, that's one of these prongs that Meadows had the burden of kind of showing. And and I suppose that there was they felt there was no way that he could show that without getting up on the witness stand and testifying to it. And that's precisely what he did. I'm Quinta Jurassic, a senior editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 29th, 2023. Yesterday, August 28th, was a busy day in court. In federal court in Atlanta, Donald Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, made the argument for why the charges against him in Fulton County should instead be tried before a federal judge. And in Washington, D.C., Trump's attorneys tangled with the special counsel's office in a hearing in the January 6th case, which resulted in Judge Tanya Chutkin scheduling a trial date for March 4th, 2024. Lawfare's devoted team headed to both courtrooms, and now we're bringing you a double dispatch from both Georgia and DC. I sat down with Anna Bauer, who spent her day in the Georgia courtroom, and Serafine Donati and Heyman Hahn, who held down the fort in DC, to talk through the two hearings. It's the Lawfare Podcast. August 29th. Two cities, two hearings. All right, everyone. We are coming off a big day of hearings in the January 6th and Fulton County cases. So before we dive into the details, let's just give a high-level overview of what exactly happened today. Um, So all three of you, Seraphine Heyman and Anna, were in court. Let's start with the Georgia case. Anna, just at a very, very high level, why were you in court today? Thanks, Quinta. We were in court today because Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff for Donald Trump, who 
was recently indicted in Fulton County on on racketeering and other charges, uh, is attempting to move that state prosecution to federal court. It is authorized under a statute called uh, 28 U.S.C. 1442, which allows federal officials or former federal officials to remove these state prosecutions to federal court if they can show that they were a federal official, that uh, the conduct that they are indicted for relates to or has some causal connection to their federal office or federal duties, and then finally that they can raise a colorable federal defense. So Meadows has alleged you know, that he can remove this case to federal court, and today the judge presiding over the matter, federal judge Steve Jones, held a hearing, and it was an evidentiary hearing, meaning that we heard from several witnesses, and I know we'll get into that, but that's a pretty high-level summary of, of what went down. Perfect. So, Seraphine, let me turn to you. You and Heyman were in the E. Barrett Prettyman United States Courthouse today in Washington, D.C. What brought you there? We were in court today. We were following Trump's trials, uh, specifically his pre-trial hearings related to a status conference and his pre-trial SEPA hearing as well. And if you'll recall, uh, Trump has been charged in D.C. for several federal crimes, including 18 U.S.C., 1512C2, um, 1512K, I believe, 18 U.S.C. Section 371, and 18 U.S.C. Section 241. Now, we won't get into that, but it's important just to remember that these are federal crimes. And a lot of what was discussed today is what should the trial date be? So listeners might remember that both the defense and prosecutors had filed motions uh, not too long ago and prosecutors that asked that the trial date be set for January 2024. And defense argued that that's way too short of a timeline. They actually need more time, two years to be exact, and that the trial date be set for, I believe it was April 2026. And so today at court, we watched both parties duke it out and explain why their timeline should be truncated or expanded. And we also discussed a little bit about uh, SEPA-related issues, and SEPA governs uh, classified information and how they would be handled in court. It's it's sort of a sub-issue of the larger issue of a trial date. All right. So, Anna, let's start with you, and then we will head north to Washington, D.C. So you had kind of an unexpected surprise today. It turned out that uh, Mark Meadows himself ended up actually testifying on the witness stand. Talk to me a little bit about that. That was not expected, right? It was a shocking moment. I audibly gasped when we're sitting there in court and the judge, you know, does his introductory remarks. And then he turns to defense counsel and says, Defense counsel, call your first witness, because again, this was an evidentiary hearing, meaning that uh, both sides were expected to, you know, put up some evidence to uh, support or to refute uh, the the removal motion. So uh, as soon as the judge says, uh, "Defense, call your first witness," and and they say. Your Honor, we call Mark Randall Meadows, and it it was 
just really surprising because anyone who's familiar with, you know, trials or criminal defense, it's quite unusual to, you know, put a criminal defendant on the stand unless you absolutely have to. It's possible that um, here Meadows insisted on it, but I I just recall talking to folks beforehand and we all said, no, they're not going to risk putting him up there on the stand and and subjecting him to cross-examination. It's not going to happen. And then sure enough, it did. Uh, So it it was really surprising and a really kind of astonishing moment to see the former chief of staff indicted on state crimes now in federal court taking the stand to talk about uh, how he perceived the duties of his office when he was chief of staff. And so just to sort of make this a little clearer for listeners, why is it that it's so rare to hear a defendant speak in court? I mean, most most criminal defense attorneys are just very reluctant to put their client on the stand because especially, you know, at an at an early stage like this, you know, you don't want to uh, subject them to being asked incrimin- potentially incriminating questions. You know, you don't want them walk to walk into a figurative landmine that there are a tr- kind of trap that the prosecutor might set. And, and so you really just are very careful about making sure that, you know, they aren't, uh, you know, put under cross-examination like that. Um, and, and, you know, of course, every criminal defendant has a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. So it, it's just the kind of thing that people are reluctant to waive that right. And, and so it was just really surprising. Um, here, one reason, you know, beforehand, we thought potentially he could testify, even though it would be unlikely, is because the removal analysis, the test requires one of the elements of it. You know, there's it's a multi-pronged test, but one of the elements requires uh, showing that the federal official in question who is seeking to remove uh, subjectively believed that the conduct that is alleged in the indictment was was conduct that was necessary and proper to to their role as a federal official. So, you know, that's one of these prongs that Meadows had the burden of kind of showing. And and I suppose that there was they felt there was no way that he could show that without getting up on the witness stand and testifying to it. And that's precisely what he did. Right. And and I, I think it's worth emphasizing, you know, it's particularly sort of unexpected for Meadows to testify here because not only is he potentially exposing himself in the Georgia case, he also may, we don't know, have potential criminal liability in the January 6th case. And so there's a sort of a whole nother avenue of potential legal jeopardy there. Obviously, that's speculative, but I think worth worth keeping in mind. So you mentioned um, that there are three prongs to this removal test. So I think that that is a, a useful thing to dig into here as well. Can you just explain to start off before we get into those three prongs, what is removal and why does Meadows want to do it? Yeah. So removal, like I said, is is a 
it's something that's authorized under this statute. It means that you can move these state criminal charges to be litigated in in federal court before a federal judge. It doesn't mean that you're changing the nature or the substance of the charges. Uh, they would still be state charges under state law. It would still be prosecuted by Fonnie Willis and her team. The only difference is just that you get a federal jury pool that would be drawn from a wider uh, range of um, districts. So it would it would go not just from Fulton County, but from nine other counties in the Atlanta area. Those, some of those counties are slightly more conservative uh, politically than than Fulton County is. Although, you know, as a whole, the jury pool would not be too much different in terms of its political ideology. But you also get a federal judge uh, to oversee the trial. Federal procedural rules apply. Um, And, you know, there's a few reasons why you might want to get into federal court. I think one of the big reasons maybe here lurking in the background is that federal courts tend to be a little bit more closed off in terms of public and media access with video cameras and audio streaming. Uh, In Georgia courts, it's very common to have uh, video in court. uh, And and we all saw that, of course, with the grand jury indictment a few weeks ago when that was streamed on on, uh, news stations everywhere. And and so there may be some reluctance to have this trial uh, streamed or, or video Another reason is that, you know, you might think that federal judges are going to be a little bit more, um, you know, deferential to federal interest and the and the uh, scope of of office of a federal officer. And that's important here because it's expected that Meadows will seek to dismiss the charges on supremacy clause immunity grounds, which is very similar to the test that takes place at the removal stage, which is, you know, it's this immunity doctrine that that allows a federal official who is prosecuted under state law to to be immune from the, that prosecution if they can show that they were acting uh, within the lawful scope of their federal authority. So again, different standard, but very similar kind of test at, at that stage. Um, and so Meadows might have an idea that you know a federal judge or the Eleventh Circuit or or SCOTUS, as opposed to Georgia state courts, would be a little bit more deferential to him on on, uh, seeking that dismissal. And so if he removes, then that's the appellate courts that this case would would proceed to. It would go to the 11th Circuit and to SCOTUS first, rather than, you know, first proceeding through the state courts or, or having to deal with issues of going from state court to getting some kind of federal jurisdiction if they want SCOTUS to, to review something. So Right. So so you mentioned the removal test. We mentioned it before. Walk me through those three different factors and what Meadows' testimony today had to do with them. Right. So the first prong of it is just you have to show that you were a federal officer at the time of the alleged conduct. 
Here, the state, uh, Fulton County prosecutors conceded that, you know, there was no question that at the time that this conduct occurred, Meadows was a, 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 the, the chief of staff in the White House for tr the Trump administration. So that one was not really an issue. It was more so these the second and third prong. So the second prong is that the, the federal officer has to show that the conduct that is alleged by the state had some causal connection, meaning an association or some relation to the, the federal duties of the officer. Um, so they just have to show that, you know, whatever it is that Meadows did, it was related to his official duties as chief of staff for the Trump White House. And, and then the third prong is raise a colorable federal defense. Here, as we discussed, that is Meadows has raised supremacy clause immunity. And, and, and what, what is that, just for listeners who aren't familiar? Yeah. So supremacy clause immunity, as I said, is it's it's this immunity doctrine that is basically says that a federal officer cannot be prosecuted by a state prosecutor for acts that are authorized by federal law, provided that those acts were necessary and proper to their federal duties. So and within that you know, like I said, it's a multi-pronged analysis, so it gets a little complicated. But within that necessary and proper language, you know, the federal officer is supposed to show that they both subjectively believe that it was necessary and, and, and proper to their duties as a federal officer, and then objectively or reasonably believed that. Um, so it, there's, again, a lot of factors here, um, but basically, if Meadows is successful on the Supremacy Clause immunity defense, then, then he could potentially get these charges dismissed. But here, he just has to raise a plausible or arguable claim of it. He doesn't actually have to show that he uh, would succeed on the merits. And I think that's important for people to understand. And so what what did he testify to? What did he say in trying to make this argument? Right. So we started out with direct by uh, George Tewilliger, who is Meadows' attorney, who's a, a quite uh, renowned attorney, he's, and he's been with Meadows for some time now. Uh, so he did the direct examination of Meadows, which is where, you know, the, the, the attorney for the defendant will ask questions that are kind of open-ended and, and Meadows kind of gets to tell his side of the story. Um, so as Meadow tells it, you know, they went one by one through the indict, the acts that are alleged in the indictment. And on all of these things, you know, it's things that are alleged like the Raffensperger phone call, his participation in that. Meadows, uh, it's alleged that he showed up um, in Cobb County when the signature verification audit was ongoing. And, you know, he was this uninvited kind of observer to this uh, signature verification audit in Georgia. It's uh, things like participating in or arranging meetings with state legis legislators. So they go through all of those things kind of one by one. And Meadows gives his rationale for, you know, why he did it or what his understanding of it was. Uh, some of them he contested that he 
was involved to the extent that the indictment alleged. So, for example, there's there's one point in the indictment where it's alleged that he participated in a meeting with uh, Pennsylvania state legislators in a meeting in the Oval Office uh, that was about, you know, election fraud and uh, what could be done about overturning the results of the election and that kind of thing. And Meadows said his memory of it is that he only went down to meet these legislators uh, because three of them had tested positive for COVID and, and he told them to leave because, you know, he didn't want them near the president and, and they had all this protocol around COVID at the White House. Um, so he he disputed that. He also disputed the claim that he had asked uh, Johnny McEntee to write a memo um, that dealt with issues regarding the 2020 election. And just to clarify, this is, this is I believe, Trump's body man or a close aide to Trump, who's not indicted in Georgia, correct? Yes, uh, he, he's not indicted in Georgia. And, and I believe Meadows' testimony was that at that time, he was no longer the body man for Trump, but he was in the uh, personnel office at the White House. And there were a few times here where it was unclear if Meadows was testifying that he did not recall doing these things or if he actually did not do them. So the judge a few times interjected and would say, you know, Mr. Meadows, is it is it your testimony that you did not do these things or that you do not recall doing them? And and Meadows was a little bit wishy-washy on, on some of those points, I will say. Um, it seemed that, and you know, memory is complex, but he he certainly did not seem to be entirely clear on on whether he affirmatively did not do those things or um, just did not recall doing those things. So, and there were a few times like that. In terms of the other conduct that he did admit to doing, he had these, you know, rationales that he gave, uh, for example, going to Cobb County to observe the the signature verification audit that was ongoing there. He claimed that that was so that because he anticipated that the president would ask about it and that one of his roles as chief of staff was, you know, to anticipate what the president would be interested and be able to give him advice. So be able to tell him, you know, whether or not this was an issue to be concerned about or it wasn't. And then also to, uh, you know, think about time management. So with the Raffensburger call, he his memory of the Raffensburger call uh, was that it was all about settling this ongoing litigation that the Trump team had uh, with respect to uh, these suits they were bringing against Raffensburger and the state of Georgia. His explanation is that, you know, he was furthering the duties of his office by setting up and participating in that call because he, uh, you know, wanted to just get some kind of closure one way or another on how to resolve this ongoing litigation so that the president could turn his attentions to the peaceful transition of power. Um, so we had all of these reasons about time management and advice to the president and all of these things that were kind of, you know, he was suggesting that that further some kind of federal interest or or was within the scope of his office and what he what he did as chief of staff to to uh, further federal objectives. So what else happened during the hearing? Was Meadows the only person who testified or were there others? So uh, Meadows was not the only person who testified. Uh, we also had 
four other witnesses who were subpoenaed by the district attorney's office. That was Kurt Hilbert, Alex Kaufman, Francis Watson, and Brad Raffensperger. Only two of those witnesses, though, ended up testifying. It was Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, and of course, you know, the subject of that famous "Find Me Votes" call that uh, that Trump made on January second, twenty twenty one. And and then there was also Kurt Hilbert, who was a campaign attorney who had worked on uh, some of these suits that Meadows claimed were the subject of that phone call with Raffensperger. And he he only testified very briefly. He you know testified to the circumstances surrounding how the call came about. But then Brad Raffensperger got up and and he I think had a quite compelling testimony that really seemed to refute uh, some of. Meadows' claims or, or, or Meadows' memory of the call being about settlement uh, conditions, because according to Raffensperger, you know, that was not something that he believed was the subject of the call. You know, they had differing memories around uh, what whether or not it was primarily about the campaign or if it was about, you know, just getting this litigation resolved. So at that point, during the Raffensperger testimony, the district attorney's office started playing some excerpts of the phone call that the famous Raffensperger call. And it it was really compelling. Um, And I think it was a preview of kind of, you know, how things might go at trial. So it was really fascinating to see all of that play out. So did we get a ruling on whether or not the case will be removed? We did not get a ruling. Judge Jones said that he uh, would try to issue a ruling as fast as possible. But he did note that, you know, this is an issue that does not have a lot of precedent. It's the kind of thing that he thinks will be setting precedent for for other uh, decisions in the future. And and so he, I think it sounded like, wanted to be very careful in writing this opinion. Um, he did say that if Meadows, if he does not issue a ruling by September 6th, then Meadows uh, must appear for arraignment in Fulton County. That is the date that these arraignments have been set in Fulton County. So I'm... I suspect we probably won't get a ruling before before then, um, but you know we will see. And there's more removal action on the horizon too, because we already have dates set for Jeffrey Clark's efforts to remove and Sean Still's efforts to remove. So uh, we're going to see some more of this, and and I wonder, you know, if Judge Jones is maybe going to wait until. Uh, some more of these hearings are under his belt before ruling, but we'll see. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, relax. 
and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. All right. So with that, let's move to Washington, D.C. Seraphine, what happened during today's hearing? We're hashing out both the date that the trial is set to begin and these SEPA issues. So walk me through what took place. So what was interesting about today's hearing is how different it was from the hearing on August 11th. And if you'll remember, on August 11th, the parties came together to discuss the protective order. And at that time, you saw a lot of collegiality, you know, good spirits, Judge Chutkin, defense counsel, prosecutors. There was really an effort to, in some ways, work together to reach some sort of resolution, or at least that was the feeling. Judge Chutkin was in control, you know, parties made their case, and there was an outcome, and that was it. Today, it seemed like tensions were really high. And, you know, Judge Chutkin came in, she sat down, the hearing started, there wasn't too much chit-chat, smiling faces, what have you. And Judge Chutkin started by reminding the parties of her obligations today. And she had a really difficult task that she agonized over over the course of the hearing in that she had to balance the public's interest in having a fair and timely administration of justice while also upholding the defendant, President Donald Trump's right to due process. And all of this was coming to a boil because she also was in charge of figuring out a trial date that would work for both parties. And there were several points that she made before she even discussed the trial date issue. She made it very clear that, you know, setting this trial date does not depend on the defendant's professional or personal obligations. She made that point very clear last time, too. And I think uh, it's been raised in briefs and it's been raised on in hearings and in motions that this is a presidential candidate. And it's unfair to President Trump that, quote, his opposition, for example, is filing this case. And it's it's a form of political blackmail, if you will. And she's really attempting to shut that down like she did in the August 11th hearing. Uh, she draws a comparison to an athlete, for example, and says, you know, it would be wrong if I had to accommodate an athlete's schedule, for example, their personal and professional schedule. And that standard is the same for the president. She also spent a bit of time addressing the defense's motion. Um, and it was really interesting because she talked a little bit about, you know, how the defense was talking about this prolonged timeline that we've seen in comparable January 6th cases. I think uh, they said that the median time it took for those cases to be resolved was about 29.4 months. And she's called BS on that and said that that's misleading. She also made the point that the January 6th defendants, a lot of them were tried as co-defendants, for example. There was also the COVID-19 pandemic that was happening. And both of these issues are not present in the current case. And so where do we go from here? The problem in the case today and the hearing today is that a lot of these questions are tied with discovery. And so we have the government's attorney going up. It was 
Molly Gaston. And she talked about the amount of discovery that has been produced. And at the, I think last hearing, we knew it was somewhere around 11 million. And today she confirmed that discovery is up to 12.8 million pages. And she, you know, really extensively explained that a lot of that is duplicative information. A lot of that is coming from the political action committees that uh, that Mr. Trump is also aware of this information. A lot of it is coming from him. It's publicly sourced information as well. And so it might at first blush seem like a lot of discovery material. It's actually not that much, not to mention that much of this information has been uh, categorized. Um, Actually, all of the information has been categorized and that there's a really easy way electronically for the Trump team to go in and, you know, basically control find the appropriate terms that they need to search for. Also, the the discovery in large part has been reviewed by Trump's counsel, perhaps not this one, but the ones in the past. And so they really do have a system in place where discovery is being handed over. I think they had their fifth production early this morning and they're ready to proceed whenever the other side is. And that's really the problem here. That's, That's the rub, which is that Trump's defense counsel is saying that they're not ready and that this is too much information and how could you expect any defense attorney to go through all of this? What didn't make it to this hearing but I thought was quite comical is if you look at defense's motion, they, they're they not even referencing the 12.8 million because I think that number came out today. In their brief, they're talking about 11.5 million pages of documents and they mention how that is equal to the entirety of Tolstoy's War and Peace, and you would have to read that cover by cover 28 times every day from now until jury selection in order to get through discovery. They also made the comparison that if you were to stack these pages, it would be taller than the Washington Monument. And so, you know, they and they they nicely put an infographic to help us see the visual of how tall the stack would be. And the judge didn't buy it. And she said, you know, the number of pages and discovery does not swing the pendulum one way or the other when it comes to setting a jury trial. And in fact, something as far as 2026 is just a really long time away that would disadvantage the prosecutors, that would disadvantage them because memories fade for witnesses. Even having witnesses come to the stand, that possibility would be obstructed in some ways if we were to wait that long. So once again, it seems pretty clear that uh, Trump is trying to draw this out as long as possible. Uh, Judge Chutkin is not particularly interested (laughs) in letting them draw this out. So let's talk about the SIPA aspect. To what extent is that complicating the discovery questions? How did that come up here? SIPA was really interesting. So she addressed SIPA in the middle of the hearing because there was this question of how do we how do we handle classified information? And depending on that, that would either move up the date or move it back. The government uh, came in and said that you don't have to worry, Judge Chutkin, we're not intending to use classified information in our case in chief. So that should allow you to move up the trial date. And of course, if the other side, if defense decides they do want to use classified information, that they can do that, but there isn't very much of it. 
And if they decide to use it, we'll go through the SEPA steps quite quickly and make sure that that information, that no classified information is revealed to the public or revealed in trial that doesn't need to be revealed. So that's the background of SEPA. Now, what was really interesting about this case is we actually heard from Blanche for the first time, Todd Blanche. And he is quite different from Loro. So during the entire hearing, Loro was very animated, very angry, and at times I would even say quite shrill in in making his points and, and a little bit bombastic. But you had Todd Blanche come up and he was this very humble guy. He's quite tall. Um, he had a slight nod to his head, tilt to his head. It was almost like he was in a bit of a bow the entire time and he had his hand to his chest. So when he spoke, he was so humble and and warm and he was clearly playing good cop. And I think Judge Chutkin appreciated that. There was he was showing some deference to her in a way that I think Lauro perhaps wasn't. And basically what Todd Blanche said was, you know, that we're fine if the government doesn't want to use this classified information in its case in chief, that that's okay. But realize that I don't have top security clearance and I need that in order to uh, review some of this material. Uh, the government had said, you know, as soon as he gets his top security clearance, let's set the the date that SEPA Section 5 motion needs to be filed in 30 days. And Blanche went up and said, you know, I don't know how long this is going to take. I also have a case in the Southern District of Florida, and that's also a Trump matter. That's the Mar-a-Lago matter. And I'll be quite busy with that. Uh, not to mention that my co-counsel, John Lord, doesn't have clearance. He doesn't even have the interim clearance. And so I suggest that we wait to set any sort of SEPA motion, SEPA-related motions until John Loro gets his uh, top security clearances. And as soon as he gets that, then we should set the date 30 days from when he receives it. And the government was, you know, quick to their feet. They said, no, that that's not right. I, I also think that he was, I think Judge Shutkin is very smart and very shrewd and would not fall for it. But I think she was pleased that Todd Blanche was so respectful and deferential. I think the government was very quick to their feet to ensure that she did not rule in their favor, in the defense's favor, and ultimately reminded her, let's just keep it at 30 days. Let's have Todd Blanche get his security clearance, top secret security clearance. Once he does, we'll set the SEPA motion deadline 30 days after. And she agreed. She said, if there are any other delays for any clearances, we'll go from there. But for right now, let's just keep the schedule as is. And that was really helpful because as soon as you decide how classified information will be handled, you're able to set a trial date. This is what Molly Gaston also mentioned is once you can do that, you can just, you can go backward and start setting different dates. And so once that was established, once the the SEPA issue is established, there was uh, a bit more of an expedited a discussion as to what the trial date should be. which And we got a decision on that. We did get a decision on that. So the trial date is set for March 4th, which is the day before Super Tuesday. Yes. So very, very fortuitous. And it's also right before uh, the end of March, I believe March 25th, um, which is when the uh, Manhattan trial is currently scheduled to start. So assuming right. that those dates stand, it will be a busy March uh, for, for Donald Trump. 
Um, I should also note after this ruling by Judge Chuckin, Trump was posting on Truth Social that he was planning to appeal uh, this ruling. Um, unfortunately for him, you cannot appeal a trial date. So we will see uh, if Laura and Blanche take that up. To that point, Judge Chutkin also mentioned that she knows that there are several trials going on and that she has been in touch touch with Judge Merchant before she decided the March 4th deadline. So that was an interesting insight in that there is communication between the judges. I think we know that, but it was interesting to hear her acknowledge that and to and to make it clear to defense that th- this is it's coordinated insofar as we're trying to make sure that we're not overwhelming the defendant with a court date on the same day, for example. That's really interesting. So I want to do a, a little bit of a vibe check. Um, so Serafin, you were in the media room. Heyman, you're in the actual courtroom. What was the mood like while you were there? Yeah, it was rather chill. I think it was a bit of a long hearing for for folks. So there was a lot of very procedural and just dry, how much time have you had to do this? What percentage of discovery is going to be something that you've already seen before? Give me a lot of numbers, give me reasons, concrete reasons why you don't think that you can do the date that the government wants. And a lot of those questions ended up being, again, just very routine, even though Loro started off in his initial response quite heated, it eventually just dissipated and became very cut and dry. So I think by the end, it was about an hour and a half. um, People were kind of just waiting to hear what she, what Judge Chuckin would decide, but it wasn't a very otherwise excitable or strange hearing. Jack Smith was sitting in the front row. So clearly he had an interest in in knowing what would be decided today. And in general, the government seemed quite earnest in trying to make their point to the judge that they're doing everything they can to make it as easy as possible for Trump's defense to go through all this information. Gaston really emphasized that she essentially, or the government has provided a roadmap for Trump to be able to get through all of these different discovery pages by giving them a key documents outline from the very beginning. And Chuckin made sure to ask if that key documents outline has changed since the beginning. And Gaston said, no, basically, we've told them what our case is, and they should know what our case is. And Loro kind of responded in rhetoric, but it came down to the facts of them having already had a lot of this information through the Jan 6 committee, through the grand jury witness investigation and interviews, and through open source sources. Anna, I want to get a vibe check um, on Fulton County as well. What was it like in the courtroom there? <laughs> I mean, it was it, it was a wild day. I, I I'm still kind of astonished that the former chief of staff testified and that 
then, you know, we also at the same time had Georgia's current secretary of state testifying. And in many ways, you know, these two men had just drastically different memories and perceptions of of events that occurred. And it was just a really, I mean, I, I still am a little bit awestruck by it all. Um, so that's my vibe check. I also should mention, too, that, you know, it wasn't just media in the courtroom today. Donald Trump's attorneys, his new attorney, Steve Sadow, and his other attorney, Jennifer Little, who uh, has been with him on this case for a while, they were sitting right across the aisle from me taking notes the whole time and whispering to each other the whole time. Jeffrey Clark's attorney, Harry McDougald, was also in the courtroom. I spoke to an associate who was working on Ken Chesbro's case. So, and I'm sure there were more. So all of these, you know, defense attorneys were in there waiting to see what would happen. And, you know, Judge Jones, in terms of what he might do, I get the sense that he, on one hand, I I get the sense that he is leaning towards keeping it in state court. He asked a lot of questions about, you know, what authority the chief of staff or the president might have under the Constitution or under federal law to get involved in state elections and and all of these questions that seem to suggest maybe he's he's considering keeping it in state court. But at the same time, he mentioned at the end that, well, it's a really low bar to remove. Um, so I think he's trying to weigh you know, the fact that there is this very low, very weak standard of what Meadows has to show versus, uh, you know, the idea that there was no uh, legitimate authority here for Meadows to have done what he did. So I think it'll be interesting to see what he ultimately decides. So in that case, as you say, we're really just waiting for the judge's ruling. In the D.C. case, Seraphine, is there anything that we should be looking out for going forward? So Laura actually laid out several motions that he wants to file. The first is a motion of executive immunity and basically to even question whether this case should exist. He notes that we're basically prosecuting a former president for doing his job, which is being a former president. It's an argument that I know has been hashed out in lawfare quite a bit, and Ben and I are planning on writing some about that, but that seems to be a novel issue in his mind. He also notes that he plans to file a selective prosecution motion because, according to him, the prosecutor's boss, he doesn't say it explicitly, but essentially President Joe Biden, is, quote, running a presidential campaign, and he's using the levers of justice to put Trump in this sort of debacle where he can't properly run for president. He also notes that there are going to be First Amendment issues that he needs to think about, and these are deep, deep novel issues. There are Rule 17 subpoenas that he's also considering. And because of the novelty of these issues, he also mentions that he really needs more time. He also uh, mentioned that he'll file motions to dismiss all of the conspiracy charges. And so those are a couple or a few of the motions and some of the arguments that I think we're going to hear more about. And just for the audience's information, some of this information that Lauro shared with 
Judd Chetkin, he had shared on television when he went and spoke on Sunday morning a few weeks ago. He's also done a podcast, it seems, and he's talked about Mike Pence's book that he's read cover to cover twice, and he's he already knows the kinds of questions he wants to ask Mike Pence when Mike Pence takes the stand. And so I, I anticipate we will see more of Lauro on television and also on podcasts discussing the nooks and crannies of his case. Well, at least we have something to look forward to. <laughs> All right, let's leave it there when we will uh, keep our eyes peeled for those future appearances by John Lauro. Anna, Seraphine, Heyman, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Quinta. Thanks, Quinta. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pache Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Radio. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.